Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thanks to funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and Wellcome Trust, I'm embarking on a series of conversations under the banner Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from, and with gratitude to, our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. The conversations convened under Theory in the Flesh explore sexual racism, refugees and asylum seekers, masculinity, black women, medical research and therapy, and should hopefully, if I've done my job, provide a window into just some of the many considerations we have to make as queer black people in the UK about our health. I really hope you all enjoy these conversations. Our livelihood, our health, our thriving is of the utmost importance to me, and a great deal of care, thought and research has gone into these conversations. As ever, I would love to hear from you. Please do email me on busybeingblackpod at gmail.com. That's busybeingblackpod at gmail.com with any feedback. Wherever we are, we have to continue to remember other people who are living in our communities who are disadvantaged, who no one remembers. Not only LGBT asylum seekers, we have disabled asylum seekers, we have mothers, we have women who are victims of trafficking, who are unable to have a voice. We have to remember them to say, who is speaking for these people? How can we support people? How can we help? On the 26th of March, Francis Weber, the vice chair of the Institute of Race Relations' Council of Management and a former barrister specializing in immigration and refugee and human rights law, wrote of the self-isolation required to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Those without homes or privacy cannot distance or self-isolate, nor can they observe strict hygiene without access to hot water and soap. For homeless people in night shelters or on the streets, for prisoners and immigration detainees sharing overcrowded cells or rooms, toilets and communal canteens, and for asylum seekers living in destitution, there is no escape from the infection. Today, I'm in conversation with Maud Goba of Micro Rainbow, the charity working in service of LGBTQ asylum seekers and refugees in the UK. From a culture of disbelief at the home office to having to survive on 37 pounds per week, Maud takes us through the many hurdles our LGBTQ siblings encounter when they come to England seeking refuge. Maud discusses her own experience as an asylum seeker, how Micro Rainbow helps combat economic disempowerment, homelessness, and isolation, and the work we must all be doing to look after the most vulnerable in our society. And a trigger warning, the conversation today includes mentions of both sexual and physical violence. Please listen with care. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Maud Goba. Hi, Josh. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I think that this conversation has been, feels like almost two years in the making. I think you're one of the first people I wanted to interview and life has, has gotten in the way of that. But you're saving lives, so it's <laughs> fine that it's taken two years. <laughs> yes, um, I'm really excited to be here. And obviously, you know, we did talk about it quite a while back. And so I'm just glad we're here. Um, I'm in such adoration of you. I think you are such a remarkable, too kind. <laughs> too kind. A remarkable human being who I, I think, I think let's jump in. Let's give the busy being black listeners kind of a, a brief overview. If you had to describe yourself, Maud, how would you describe yourself today? That's a very difficult question. How would I describe myself today? Oh. <laughs> There's so many, so many me's. Hmm. I would say a mother, 
an activist, LGBT activist, especially around um, asylum issues. Um, probably in there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and why why the asylum issues? Why is this a particular um, point of a passion point for you? Um, I've always been uh, interested in activism. Even when I was I was born in Zimbabwe, back home, um, and also coming to the UK, um, LGBT rights were always at the forefront of my um, mind, work, and because it is essentially who I am. So the experience of being an asylum seeker in the UK also made me realize the challenges that. Mm people were facing because of my own experiences and even before I went through the system myself I was already um, working with others who were going through the same challenges so it became something that I was so passionate about because I realized how much um, even though people were now in a safe country so to speak um, they experienced a lot of challenges and continued to to suffer, so to speak. I feel like we're seeing now that our country isn't isn't so safe for black and brown mm -hmm. people. We're recording this conversation the week of the Jamaica 50, the deportation, deportations. I know that I've been feeling certainly um, emotionally despondent, I think, at the disregard for black life that we're seeing. But I think that this this disregard for black life is pretty regular for other people, right? Like I feel kind of like I've been missing something. Does that make sense if I say that? Um, it makes sense. There's a lot of injustice. There's a lot, a lot of um, people who fall through the cracks of support, issues that are almost invisible, especially for black people. And it's you're not you're not um, missing something per se, but there are other certain parts of the community who can be easily forgotten, mm -hmm. such as uh, as we're saying, asylum seekers. Um, they don't have a right to do a lot of things. They don't have a right to work. Um, they're economically disempowered and live in poverty. And if you're economically disempowered, you are automatically excluded from different things and that includes to getting to places where you can get help even accessing um, simple things such as the internet social media because if you don't have the money to top up your phone or to pay a phone bill then you don't have access to this um, to this world or to the internet or you have limited access when you get to spaces where you can get free um, internet and things like that mm -hmm. so you don't have the you don't get to access services you don't get to ha to hear your voice or you don't get to to have your voice heard so and if people are moving forward with other issues then it's easy to forget people who are asylum seekers there is already an attack on migrants who are just migrants mm. then there is uh, the this perception of who an asylum seeker is and then within the refugee community then they are the LGBT asylum seekers who are sort of excluded they face challenges we already know asylum seekers and refugees face challenges but LGBT people face additional challenges mm. and that makes them invisible that means they continue to suffer in silence and the issues are not heard so and so you yourself were an asylum seeker. You were leaving. Uh, you were seeking refuge because of what? If you're okay <laughs> to speak about it, because yes, of course, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay to share. Okay. Um, I sought asylum because of my sexuality. Um, you can seek asylum or seek refuge because of if you come from a uh, particular group, particular social group, and being LGBT is one of those things that you can seek refuge because in uh, a lot of countries as you know it is still criminalized to be yourself mm -hmm. to be a lesbian to be a gay person to be 
queer person to be a trans person, you can be arrested and you can be uh, jailed. And in a small number of countries, you can actually face the death penalty. Mm. So it was that that made me seek asylum to seek uh, protection in the UK. So I went through the process, the asylum process, and eventually got the refugee status, which you get the right to stay in the country. When you initially set out and said, okay, look, I'm going to seek refuge in the UK, did you have an idea of what that process would be like? And then did that process present to you like a much different reality? Like, was there a the time that I went to seek asylum, I was really, um, obviously, I know myself, I know my story, I knew who I was. I think it was a, a middle of like, I expected to get to the home office and explain who I am, what's going on, but it, it wasn't what I expected in terms of, um, you know, you're met, I was met with the, like this war of disbelief which was a challenge. Mm. And obviously I didn't, although I had supported people who were going through the system, I didn't have that first-hand experience of how it could be like. Mm. And I think it was sort of a, a shock for me, uh, a wake-up call. I mean, you at the time when I went to um, claim asylum, I was about 20 weeks pregnant and routinely they ask you because you know like about your health are you fit to continue are you pregnant and i just say yes i am pregnant like but you just said you're a lesbian how how, how what do you mean so right. that kind of stopped everything when we had a whole different conversation about um you know what do you mean you're pregnant and you're claiming to be a lesbian so it was it was mm. a challenge from the very start yeah, there's. I was reading about um, about this culture of disbelief that today pervades the Home Office and, and this asylum seeking or these tribunal judges. Um, according to an article published in The Guardian in 2019, the challenges faced by LGBT asylum seekers are highlighted by a case in which a first-tier immigration tribunal judge rejected the claim of a man because he did not have a gay, quote-unquote, demeanor. The judge said he did not accept the man applying to stay in the UK was gay and contrasted his appearance with that of a witness who, quote unquote, wore lipstick and had a, quote unquote, effeminate manner, who the judge accepted was gay. So this cult, so there is, you weren't expecting to meet this, that a performative standard of your sexuality, right? You weren't expecting to have to prove that you were a lesbian. Um, yes, a I, lesbian. I, I didn't expect that. I think there is sort of, uh, you have to fit a Western stereotype mm. of what a gay person looks like. About a year ago or so, I went to Manchester to a, a group called um, Lesbian Immigration Support Group. And a woman there was uh, had a poem. She wrote a poem. And she said, I want to ask the British people how to be gay. Can they teach us what, how to present as a gay person so that we can do that to be believed? Because we almost have to fit a certain stereotype of what a lesbian looks like, what a gay, pe or a gay man looks like. Or it, it's, it's difficult. And what people forget is that you're coming from a place where you've had to hide who you are and for some most of your life. So you're expected to arrive and be openly gay, forget that you've been hiding for 20 years. You now have to live openly and you're expected to be able to talk about who you are as openly as you can, but you are coming from a culture where you have been told this is wrong, you're wrong, and you're having to hide who you are in so many ways. And perhaps for most, you're suffering from internalized homophobia and you have this challenge and you almost immediately have to show that you're gay. How do you, how can, how do you prepare people for that, <laughs> right? Like in the work that you're doing now, how do you explain, you know, to people who are distraught, bereft, 
in danger, that they're going to come up against this disbelief. It's, it's, it's in my mind. I'm just, I don't understand how, how, you, how you prepare people for that. A couple of years ago, I used to work as an asylum support worker for UK Lesbian and Gay Immigration Group. And it was one of those um, things that we had to work on. It was um, taking time to work one-to-one with a person and hearing their story, listening to them. And almost that experience, I think for some, supported them in like being able to open up. But it also helps when somebody has a lawyer who has experience in in representing LGBTI people because then they they know how to help someone to write a statement about their story, about their their life. But it is, um, it can be a challenge. It can be a challenge. You almost have to open up. Just bear in mind some people can't even say the word gay to themselves, to anyone. But now they have to. They're in a situation where they're forced to to speak. If you want to be safe, you have to speak. But again, that evidence can be wow, rejected. That's really powerful. If you want to be safe, you have to speak. You have to. But you know that evidence can be rejected. Juno Diaz said in um in an interview, black people are most fluent in silence, right? Like we've had to be fluent in silence to survive. And so, you know, you're talking about people who have had to hide who they are, to be silent about who they are in order to survive. Then coming to the UK and people saying, if you want to be safe, you have to speak. And how that would then fly against all of the, all of the, you know, um, all of the armor you had put on to protect yourself. I just... You... You you do, you do. Unfortunately, you do. You have to open up. You have to prove your case. You have to prove who you are. You have to find evidence. You have to speak up. So it's, it's, it's hard. It's sometimes like I feel like it depends on who you meet. Sometimes you meet uh, home office officials who are really sympathetic, really understanding, sometimes you don't. In the case where the judge was saying he's met someone who was more camp, <laughs> yeah. right? So they just accepted that, yeah, he looks gay. But people don't understand that it's being who you are or being LGBT has nothing to do with how you look. That should be the first yeah. thing that we teach people that it's nothing to do with how you look. I've got so many questions and just comments about representation and just about how thin actually this conversation can be around representation when we don't realize how damaging these these representational tropes can be when it comes to those 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 tropes these stereotypes informing people who have a very real impact in the lives of others who they think is in danger, who they think is savable. People almost forget that we come from different cultures <laughs> when they think of those stereotypes. Um, you will meet somebody who is queer from the LGBTQI family who's just arrived and might not know all the words mm. and might not recognize all the stereotypes and might not be able to answer all those questions of, you know, when did you first come out? Or when did you first realize? But it doesn't mean that they're not who they say they are. Yeah. They just, we just come from a different space and a different culture and we have different words for different things. So you can't say to someone, um, do they recognize the, the, you know, the, the rainbow flag? Yeah, right. <laughs> or, you know, yeah. they, they might not know. So it's, it's a challenge. We have to accept the different identities of people. We have to think of um, people from who they are and where they're coming from, their cultural context, which we always forget. Mm. We, we have our own way of thinking of who 
should be what and what they should look like and what box they should fit. We should be comfortable that if we can put them in this box, then yes, maybe they are who they say they are and then we can grant them protection, but it should not be like that. No. There's always something though, isn't there, in this mm. country? <laughs> there is. There's there is, unfortunately, something. there is. Now talk to us about, you know, so someone applies for asylum here in the UK. They begin going through the asylum process. And this is where Micro Rainbow comes in, right, in providing. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about what Micro Rainbow does. So Micro Rainbow um, works in supporting people in housing, in economic empowerment, and in social inclusion. Um, so when we were talking about the different challenges that asylum seekers face, these are some of the main challenges they face. Obviously, they face the legal, which is proving their case, and there are organizations that help them to find a solicitor and stuff like that. We also, to a small extent, do that. But when people arrive and they seek asylum, sometimes they are eligible to get support from the Home Office. And they are given government accommodation. And usually it's sharing with other refugees. So this becomes a challenge for LGBT asylum seekers because then they share with other refugees from their home country or with other refugees who still hold homophobic views and it's a challenge for them because then they face abuse. People have been beaten up. People have been raped. People have had woken up to their bed doused with water. People have been pushed out of their own homes. And if you're visibly or easily identified as an LGBTI person, a trans person or a gay man or an easily identified lesbian, that is a challenge. So most Asylum, LGBT asylum seekers were abandoning their accommodation for fear. They were afraid. They were becoming street, street homeless. They were experiencing um, exploitation just for a roof over their head. So when we were working mostly in social inclusion work, we found that people who were turning up at our door were mostly homeless. And it was something that we wanted to do something about. So we started our housing project where we support homeless LGBT asylum seekers and refugees. And the other work, which is social inclusion, it tackles the extreme isolation people have. Mm-hmm. Remember, we talked about poverty. When you're an asylum seeker, if you are eligible to get support, you get accommodation and you receive about £37 a week for your food. <laughs> yes, I know. Sometimes some people use that for lunch every day. I understand. But you do get um, £37 a week and that should cover all your basics, uh, including I'm transport. Funny, but I'm just, it's shocking. I know. And that money includes transport. So it's a challenge for someone to come out so they've already, they are in a space where they are isolated. Perhaps they're living with other refugees. That means they stay in their room. They can't afford to go to places where they meet other LGBTI people because usually it's in on the scene, you know, where you have to mm-hmm. have money to get into a club or where you have to money to buy drinks or where you have to have money of sorts. So if they can't make it out of the house, with the transport at eight pounds, then they just stay at home. Mm. So our social inclusion work sought to tackle that. They can't join other refugees for fear of being ostracized. They are already pushed out by family mostly. So they can't they can't really access all the support traditionally other refugees access, you know, in um religious spaces with family or with other refugees. So they become extremely isolated and they face a lot of mental health challenges. So we started our social inclusion project where we do support people with transport to come to our space. We have different workshops and we have peer support groups that are run by refugees themselves. so it's just a space mm-hmm. for, for people and we work with different members of the community to have that space where people feel included. Um, the third 
sector for work is economic empowerment. So we've talked already, we know people are living in poverty at 37 pounds. If they're eligible, you have to meet an eligibility criteria to get that. Right. Some already don't get that. They live with family members. Um, if they have family who are at least tolerant of them, they can leave family members. Sometimes they live with friends. Sometimes people go from place to place. So it means when they get their refugee status sorted and they can work or they can access uh, universal credit or benefits, they are still disempowered economically. So it means that they don't have anywhere to start. Mm -hmm. So we already start working with people in trying to find jobs. In um, We have CV workshops with partners. We prepare people for interviews. Uh, we've worked with different corporate partners in trying to find people jobs, interviews, mm -hmm. and job offers. And um, move on, a lot of move on work. Because remember, people are either in home office accommodation or they don't have anywhere to stay. They're already kind of staying with friends or sofa surfing. So the main other move on work that people need is in finding more permanent accommodation. Mm, some, some stability. Some stability, which is, again, a challenge because someone doesn't have credit history in the country, which means they can't get a loan to put a deposit on a house. Wow. <laughs> so that's... Uh, that's most of our work, in a nutshell, housing, social inclusion, and economic empowerment, and move on. In a nutshell. I can only imagine how hard it is <laughs> to wrangle all of this work into I'm into thinking if nutshell. I start explaining the different parts of that work, is we can go on <laughs> for a while. Yeah, I think that's like a, it's a, I'm really, um, I, I, I feel really, um, last night, I was having a conversation with someone about the closure of LGBTQ space, social spaces mm -hmm. in London. And, you know, Amy LeMay, our night star, has been talking about, you know, something like 60% of LGBTQ venues have closed over the past seven or eight years in London, right? And just until you said social isolation and this 37 pounds a week, I had never even once considered free access or spaces that allow for free participation for LGBTQ people. I've almost always explicitly thought of bars and cafes and, uh, you know, right? Like, I know, which I, I guess we would do, right? Living in a capitalist society as privileged queers, right? We would think, well, of course, it's the closure of bars has this impact on my love life. <laughs> but actually, this, this closure of social spaces for LGBTQ people where money isn't necessarily, or a transaction, a financial transaction isn't necessarily um, the goal, would obviously have a profound impact on the experience of people like asylum seekers and refugees. It, like it, even if it was a gay library or, you know what I mean, like some community be. center. Somewhere to be. I, I remember Somewhere years ago uh, when I was much younger and first came to this country, there was a place called Kairos in Soho, and um, I used to be able to go there to different workshops. It right. was a place where I think um, back then uh, we had gotten together and we had Black Lesbian UK with oh, Lady Phil right. and yeah. Rose and other ladies, and there was that space where they were at Kairos where they would do workshops, and I would be able to go there because I couldn't afford to going to the bars in Seoul and places like that. So I actually looked forward to being able to go to that particular place because then I would socialize with others. I would meet um, other LGBTI people there. So those kind of spaces are essential. And I don't think it's only um, asylum seekers who need that space. When we speak of social inclusion, we forget other people who are not economically empowered. Not everyone can afford to go to Soho. Can imagine yeah, we have a lot of coffee, people in yeah. our <laughs> in our communities who are isolated because they can't afford to go to these spaces. We have people who are young, young homeless people mm -hmm. who are obviously over sixteen but under a certain age where they can get the full support. Those are still people who are facing isolation who need those free spaces free social spaces to be it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to lucky land you know what they say 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Asylum seekers come to the U.K. Do they have access to and are they encouraged to use the health service? They have access to the eligible to have primary health care, you know, register with the GP and things like that. How it happens is some GPs know that asylum seekers are eligible to, and they will register asylum seekers. But a lot of um, asylum seekers still face that challenge. That if the GP, depending on the GPT, GP practice, if they see their, their documentation, you get a card called asylum registration card. If they see it and they don't think it's enough evidence for them, they can refuse to register you. There are organizations such as Doctors of the World and uh, Praxis who help people to find a GP. We also do a lot of work in helping the residents in our house to register with the GP. You almost have to advocate for people. I've had to phone several GPs so many times to say, can I speak to the service manager and send to them uh, bits of the law that says that, you know, asylum can access primary care, and that includes being able to register the GP. So sometimes you find that when people go by themselves and they're rejected, then they, they don't feel empowered to go back and challenge to yeah. say, I, I am eligible to join. So then they don't do it. And then in the end, they suffer in silence and don't access health care. We won't even start talking about... Um, our trans siblings accessing services and hormones. That is another big issue where a lot of our clients who live in our houses or who we work with are not able to access that you know support that they so need and which means they don't have hormones that they need mm. and other medications that they need. So we find that a lot of people end up accessing black market hormones which is they go online or, you know, someone tells them they can go online and they can register with the doctor online who send them something or a friend will give them something because they are just, they need to be who they are and this service is not being offered to them. Or if the gender clinic, where they have some cases where the gender clinics sent them what they needed and say, take this to your GP, and they were registered with the GP. When they got to the GP, the GP said, I don't think you're eligible for this. Right. Or they would say, I don't know, I wouldn't be able to support you later on um, with this medication. I, we don't have any other trans people in our books. We haven't done that before. So, so far, I actually haven't worked with a trans client who has managed to get the support from the GP. Wow. Most have been able to get that support after they get their refugee status. Okay. But before, while they're asylum seekers, not one, not yet. It's something that we're still trying to connect with other organizations. Um, we do refer people to other organizations as well who offer trans-specific um, services to try and get that support. But it's still a challenge. Mm. It's a challenge we have to also push. We have to advocate for people. We have to send them to other organizations who are able to sign them up with a GP if push comes to shove. But mostly we have to advocate for people. Which <laughs> part of our orientation um, when somebody gets into our house is actually registering them with a GP. Right, right. <laughs> because right. we... It's part of the onboarding process. It's, on, it's the onboarding <laughs> process because we realize that we used to welcome people and, you know, we do all the other orientation, area orientation, house orientation. And then a few days later, they, they come back saying, this GP won't, won't register me. Right. So we've actually started adding that on to part of our orientation. I can imagine what a relief it would be to encounter you, <laughs> you know, to see your face, to hear your voice. Um, yeah. 
don't know how to respond to that. That's really kind of you. Um, but I don't think it should be like that. Say more. I, I don't think it should be that people have to suffer so much that they have to sure. tr- try and... F- they, there are lots of me it's out there in our organizations, in different organizations. You know, there are a few, but it's it should not be like that. If somebody is seeking safety, if these things are allowed and, you know, people are already eligible for these services, then they should be offered. Yeah, and I think there's quite this... I don't know, this is in my head, and I hope it makes sense, but this is really bringing into relief for me the the ways that we as a society don't live up to our purported values right <laughs> james james baldwin <laughs> said you want me to take a leap of faith <laughs> right mm. on some ideals that you say exist in this country but i have never seen right and i it's i think this if there are if there are our siblings around the world who are looking to us and to our country as a potential site of safety for them to be who they are because we're trumpeting around the world how open and proud we are and gay marriage this and come out for LGBT and put on these rainbow laces. But actually when they get here, they're not actually met by that safety and by these ideals because they don't fit into this kind of very neat, very white idea of what it means to be LGBTQ of who mm. is deserving of protection, who protection, is deserving support. of recognition. Yeah, I think it's it's like the the disparity. We, like, like you rightly said, we are in a country where people have rights. We can go to a wedding, you can go to a gay wedding. Everything is fine. There is equality, but yeah, is quote, there? Yeah. But how do you say there's equality when there are other members of your community who can't afford the same rights and if they come for protection they're not offered it it's 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 ridiculous you know there are lots of people who are left behind it's a nice way of saying it ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> i can think it's of a lot of words <laughs> it's how how do you say you have equality when there are lots of members of the community who are left behind yeah. it's not only asylum seekers we do have issues in um, our black communities Mm -hmm. and those are not addressed people are still left behind no one engages to support people no one is uh, doing active work to ensure that everybody's enjoying this equality that we're talking about Um, I was on Twitter the other day I think he was uh, an activist in Uganda, if not Uganda, Kenya, called Dennis. He was talking about having gone to the embassy. It was a British embassy or one of the European embassies for an LGBT celebration at the embassy. And he said something that was quite striking for me, that we are here, you're celebrating us, you're talking to us, and you're saying you know, how you want us to get the same rights as in your country and how you want to support us, and you are horrified by people being killed here because they're gay, or by being a, people people being arrested because of their um, sexual sexual gender um, identity. But we hear of our siblings who are over there in your country, and you're refusing them. Uh, the safety that they're asking for. (laughs) And yet when you're here, you're horrified. You're talking about how you can help us. But when we come to your countries for help, you're not offering it. Yeah. Wow. It was just like, wow. Because obviously the activists on the ground have a lot of people who are here crying back to them to say, can you help me? What should I do? And they're saying, "How, how can that be? That you offer to support us here, and yet when our siblings who come over there and ask for support, they're met with disbelief, disbelief, and yeah. no support, and you know they face the challenge of <laughs> yeah. If I think the MPs, you can get that. Someone tweeted yesterday that MPs have an expense or allowances of over three hundred pounds per day. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it's not funny. It's funny because it's ridiculous. Mm. 
They're right? MPs. That, that the MPs get over 300 pounds per day for their expenses to do a job in service of us, mind. Mm. And we only give, I mean, 37 pounds a week. 37 pounds a week. I think when you look at that 37 pounds a week, just think of um, my own experience when I was in asylum. I was a mother. Now I was a mother with a, with a young baby. On um, this amount age, I think for babies it was a little bit more back then, but not much more. It was you have to count all your nappies on there. You have to count the baby food on there. You have to still be able to afford the transport to go to the home office reporting event every two weeks. That includes your clothing. That includes clothing for the baby. And if you're a woman, that includes your sanitary towels as well, which are really expensive. Mm. So it's just... It was hell. It was living in continual poverty. I think there was a time when I, I, I always kind of get emotional when I talk about it. When um, Phil, Lady Phil, mm -hmm. would come to Manchester, she'd come to like through work. I was displaced to Manchester by um, the Home Office, so she'd if you if she was working in the area, she'd always find little funny ways of giving me money. <laughs> Because we're living in poverty, but obviously she didn't want to highlight that. Right, She'd yeah. always say, let's go shopping, I feel like shopping. And I would end up coming back with like clothes and food and things for the baby. It was just, it's one of those things that people don't realize that, you know, it's not only all asylum seekers who suffer, they are mothers, they are women. You know, you have to, you have to afford to live on that um, money and to live in poverty, so... It's it's a lot. It's overwhelming. <laughs> the issues are so much that if we started to talk about them and took apart took apart piece by piece by piece, we'll be here the whole day. So <sighs> mm. you have to sign. Hope that we do better. Hope that we continue to remember when when wherever we are, we have to continue to remember other people who are living in our communities who are disadvantaged and who are falling through the cracks of support, who no one remembers, you know, not, on, not only LGBT asylum seekers, we have disabled asylum seekers, we have mothers, we have women who are victims of trafficking. It goes on and on. All people who are and can be oppressed and people who don't have a voice who can't or who are unable to have a voice, we have to remember them to say, who is speaking for these people? How can we support people? How can we help? And we have to challenge ignorance. Sometimes I hear people, see people on Twitter talking about how asylum seekers get money. They don't know it's 37 pounds <laughs> a week, you know, yeah. because of um, all this propaganda and certain media outlets when they say they got a house they don't know that in this house there are other people living in there in some spaces people share a room okay which is not going to be okay if somebody is for example a trans person if their documentation still says male and they are female initially they might end up in a male household right. which for those days is stressful is a challenge that's the kind of thing that we try and support with our housing and people don't know that it's a shared house they just hear they got a house in london and you hear people saying i am having i'm british and i'm having difficulties getting a house in london but they don't know that people do share room mm -hmm. in those spaces mm -hmm. they do share a house and sometimes it's just not comfortable at all. Not not the comfort that th they think people are getting. Sure, they, they think that we're offering asylum seekers the lap of luxury, all of the best housing, yes. the best <laughs> access to things, the best health care, and it's like, no. No, it's not, not like that at all. They, they, we just need to challenge some of this ignorance, ignorance around the issues. Maybe people say those things because they don't know. 
but maybe they say it because they're racist or they're anti-migrants or for whatever reason, but still those things need to be challenged. What brings you joy? I think for me, what brings me joy is when I think of all the people that we support mm. and their journeys, I know it's easy to, because there is a lot of negativity going on. There's a lot of people who are suffering. We get caught up in that. But sometimes we have a lot of success stories. Mm. We have a lot of role models. We have a lot of people who have gone through this hardship and they have won yes. completely, you know. <laughs> so that always makes me happy. That always makes the work worth it. When you know where somebody has been and they have fought and they have managed and they've gotten their status and they've gotten their job or they've started a business and everything is great and they've become a role model and, you know, it, there are a lot of amazing success stories out there of people who have gone on to become we have people who've gone on to become doctors we have people mm. who have become nurses we have people who've come who run successful businesses it's just when i think of those and go wow yeah that's amazing <laughs> it, it makes it all worth it and you're one of those winners <laughs> you're one of those <laughs> survivors you. right you are thank you i think so I think so. And you know, um, you know, uh, as listeners, regular listeners will know, I'm one of I'm I work volunteer for UK Black Pride, and you are one of the original OG Black lesbians in the UK Yay. who are responsible <laughs> for the genesis of UK Black Pride. You've been there from the very beginning. Yes, it's been it's been an amazing journey watching UK Black Pride grow. And watching, you know, you guys join. I think you guys joined and just everything exploding. It's amazing. Mm. It's amazing. I think what's, what really is the most amazing thing for me is thinking back from when it started and it was just a handful of people to thousands and thousands of people and to realizing how much needed mm. a space like UK Black Pride is. That is always... I don't I don't even know I don't even have a word to describe the feeling of wow yeah about that it's 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 there it's needed and more than ever because we have more and more people coming out because they need that space so it's always wow thousands and thousands and thousands of people for years were just yeah. They're needing that space. We were um, uh, backstage last year at UK Black Pride 2019, and there's a you know there's a point we all go on stage yes. and Lady Phil you know um, shouts everyone's name out, and a group of us were just backstage holding each other and crying, just like the you see it's it's remarkable to see in it's this case energy. ten thousand people. <laughs> You know, it's the like, energy. Wow. There's a certain energy that I think you can't even capture on a, no. uh, on, a on radio, on camera, on on video, or on a picture. It's just amazing. It's like who we could be, yeah. Right? Like that's what I think. I think UK Black Pride or this day is who we could be as a country, as a nation, as like a group of people celebrating each other and holding yes. each other and creating space for each other and saying, I see you, I recognize you, I love you, you're a human. And I appreciate you. It's, yes, it's who we could be. Because if you think of UK Black Pride, when people hear UK Pride, sometimes they say, is it only black people allowed to go there? Yeah. No. Yeah. I think it's just, they need to be there to see that it's everyone who is there, but with allies supporting and it's like siblings yeah. from the community being there for each other. Well, I want to say, Maud, thank you for being here. But honestly, I'm honored to share space with you. Thank you. You are such a remarkable human being. And you don't have to be remarkable, so you. but you are. <laughs> and it's, it means a great deal that you're here and that you've, you've shared your story and your work. 
and your love and your passion with me on the, in this space. So thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Maud Goba is a project manager for Micro Rainbow and one of the founders of UK Black Pride. The impact of COVID-19 and the attendant lockdowns and isolation is especially difficult for our siblings seeking asylum in the UK. Micro Rainbow has a wish list on Amazon, which allows those who can to send food to Micro Rainbow's safe houses. A link to the wish list is included in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.